Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. We're conditioned to want this American dream. You go to college, corporate culture, and then all of a sudden you get promoted to director and then VP and then SVP. That's what I thought success was. And so just trying to navigate, assimilate means stripping myself of who I was, not just what I was wearing, the things that I was really into, but the tone of my voice, the texture of the way I communicate. And it wasn't until I could really separate myself from this unending rat race of trying to climb in a system that really felt not just mentally and emotionally difficult, but just in my body. It was like, this is too much. I don't know if I can keep up with this. Hello, my name is Jennifer Akelame, and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. Today, we're talking to Jennifer Akelame, a brand intuitive and high vibe visionary who's founder of Gen Zen Co-Creation Studio. She is an amazing soul and someone who has experienced a ton in her own career from the agency perspective, which I enjoyed and also has kind of traveled the world and talked us through that whole journey. It's funny when she was talking, I was, and she said something about her age. I was like, oh, she's younger than us. And then we found out, I was like, oh, she's the same age. What yeah. have I been doing with my life? <laughs> 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 Jennifer's great. I uh, And a mutual friend connected us. Honestly, Sharon, when we first launched this podcast back in the spring, Yeah, and she had just left the country, and the country was starting to wake up about race. Yeah. <laughs> and she'd written this like really fire op-ed slash interview in Ad Age, which we'll be sure to post in the show notes. But it's her experience as a black woman in the marketing and advertising industry. And we talk a little bit about work, but to my sister, I'm sorry, we did have to talk a little bit about marketing. But at the same we time, did. it's about the industry and and fitting in. And while I don't necessarily believe these are unique things to any one industry, it's helpful to kind of hear very specific experiences. And more importantly, her approach and her take and how she's chosen to evolve her take on the industry. And I also just want to say, I think timing is everything. And what made me stop and pause too, as I reflect on what we talked about is if we had interviewed her a year ago, before the pandemic, before Black Lives Matter, it would have been a very different discussion, I think, or at least our listeners may have heard it differently. And I just think that a lot of what Jennifer stands for or has always stood for and continues to advocate for is more relevant now than ever before. So we hope you'll enjoy our conversation with our friend Jennifer. Jennifer, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to finally be able to talk to you after these <laughs> last couple of months. It's nothing happened this year. It's been a long nothing time. At all. Nothing at all happened at all. <laughs> You're kind of infamous. I guess what I'd like to know, or I think what all of us would like to know is, who were you before that? Can you tell us a story from your youth? Who was I before I was a model minority? No, before you were the infamous Jennifer 
Ekalame. (laughs) As a child, I have to tell you, I guess maybe an early model, I guess, minority moment would be when I was prepping for colleges. I remember I'm from Durham, North Carolina, and went to a school here in, in Northern Durham. And I distinctly remember prepping, you know, a year early to get into your top colleges because, you know, you know, before you're a senior, you have to kind of do a lot of prep work. And I was very ambitious and eager to get into my top school, which was either UNC or Duke. And so I spent my freshman and sophomore year building my extracurricular activities, you know, like keeping my grades really high doing all of these extra MSCN math and science programs. And I even started kind of like talking to my teachers to make sure I could secure great recommendations, right? So I remember asking my business club teacher, I think it was called DECA at the time, (laughs) to write me a recommendation. I said, can you write me a recommendation to get into UNC? And she looked at me surprised and said, you know, that's a hard school to get into, right? Do you have other options? And I just remember (laughs) being so furious and simultaneously just crushed because I was like, she knows I make great grades. Like, how can she even look at me and just go, you can't do it. And so after I sulked, I decided that I was going to ask for more recommendations that I needed. And I wasn't going to let one person who had a perception of my capability and my ambition to stop me from getting into my dream school. And I I remember that very distinctly. Was that a surprise? Because you said something, how could she look at me? And as you were saying that, I was like, well, literally, that's what she did. Yeah. Yeah. She looked at me and she made an assumption about how far I could go, what my capability was, what my trajectory was. I realized I mean, I guess most recently that those type of negative (laughs) interactions actually drove me to a lot of my experiences, not just in college, but outside of college. You know, when you get into the work environment, I found myself after a lot of therapy appointments and deconstructing and unpacking responses to my white coworkers that a lot of my reactions and responses to resistance were born out of a lot of those, that one moment, right? Of someone looking at me and going, putting me in a box. So yeah, I mean, that's a really kind of distinct memory for me. And did that continue throughout college and into your professional life as well? I mean, I think I don't want to make an assumption about Black and Indigenous people, people of color, but for my own experience, a lot of my drive, the undercurrent of my drive is based on that because I found myself a lot of times going into situations, whether it was a job or an extracurricular activity where I was one of the few people of color. And so before I even allowed people the chance to make a judgment about me or make a judgment about my capabilities. I just wanted, I came in hot. (laughs) You know, I would come in hot a lot or still to this day, even when I decided in my thirties to apply for graduate school. And I didn't want to just go to a regular graduate school. I really knew when I started applying that I wanted to have a different experience. So I ended up going to a portfolio school, which was really kind of advertising and art school and business school all in one. Yeah. And they make you answer all of these questions in a a quite in-depth application process. But of course, in Jennifer minority style, what I did was I created an entire magazine as my portfolio. What was it called? It was just called The Life of Jennifer Akelame. I mean, it would just, I mean, and it was glossy and I had a note from the editor, which was me. And I, I like, <laughs> designed I, by <laughs> Jennifer, produced by Jennifer, I mean, illustrated. By Jennifer. Yeah. I, I really it. went, I went all out. And that's really, <laughs> it wasn't until maybe a couple of years after that when I eventually had moved to New York. And I was just was just having trouble coping with New York and, and work. And I told her, she just kind of was like, why do you work so hard to when you, you think about your jobs? Because I would tell her about when I went to go apply for this job, because at the time I was very unhappy at, at my job. 
And I always explain it to her. Every time I apply for a job, I always do more than they ask. I always, I never come to an interview with just my resume. I come to an interview with a presentation because that is how I have been taught. You have to be twice as good as other people. And she said, that is extremely exhausting. How's that going for you? And I was like, well, I mean, what else am I supposed to do? How would you suggest that I go about navigating not only New York City, but also this really high, highly competitive industry and environment? How else would I do? How else would I get into the places that I've shown up? She said, I'm sure there's, <laughs> I'm sure there's another way that doesn't leave you exhausted and coupled with imposter syndrome, which I was really struggling with at the time. Yeah. And I I hear there's about to be an inflection point and we're about to dive into who you've become. But to dial that back a little bit, where did you think you would be when you were younger? Did you know you would end up either working in an industry like advertising, marketing, living in New York? What did you want to be when you grew up? I wish I could show you my (laughs) this high school project that I wrote. I think I was either a junior or a senior. Our English teacher for one of our projects was like, you need to write basically the book of what your life is going to be like. And on the the front of it, now this was before Mac computers, on the front of it, the printout (laughs) says me, myself, and I. And if you open it, you'll see that I said I wanted to work in New York. I wanted to be an advertising executive. And I wanted to just make all these creative things. And I recently, when I moved from New York about almost a month ago now, I take that book with me everywhere I go because one, because I think it's really funny that I wrote that as a young 16 year old and that I actually accomplished it. Right. But also I think back on how naive I was and how I didn't really understand what all of that entailed. Right. I had always wanted that. And me going into advertising, which was a very specific thing that I wrote in high school, was because also I was a huge fan of Boomerang, the movie Boomerang with Halle Berry and Eddie Murphy. Uh And his job just seemed so like it seemed like such a mix of being like a smart, sassy black woman in a pencil skirt. And creative all in one, right? And so after that movie, I was completely obsessed with advertising and trying to figure out how to do that and also be in the music industry because I am still a big lover of music. I wonder how many people saw that movie (laughs) and that propelled them into their career. I feel like a lot because at the time, I'm aging myself, but at the time, I think Boomerang came out. Oh, Jennifer. Oh, Jennifer. (laughs) (laughs) 90s or something. Bless your heart. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You young folk. (laughs) (laughs) No, but when it came out, I mean, it was the talk of the town because it was such a great, funny rom-com also that we didn't get a lot of at the time. So the fact that that came and everybody was like, oh, I didn't even know that that was a job. You mean we can, there are people who come up with these commercials and they get paid to do this? I just felt it was so glamorous and I had always wanted to leave Durham, North Carolina and move to New York and live a very fabulous life. Right. But it took me a while to, I mean, I graduated and I graduated from high school in 1996. It took me a while to actually get to, to New York. I didn't get to New York until 2012. All right. We're the same age. (laughs) (laughs) I got so, oh man. Let me ask you another question. Mom and dad, what did they want you to be? Because you probably had to sneak in to see Boomerang. Yes, I did. I did have to, I did actually. Now, now that we all know the ages. <laughs> yes, I actually did have to sneak in to see Boomerang. My parents, I would have to say specifically my mother had a very specific view of what she wanted her kids to be and grow up to be. How many siblings did you have? I'm the oldest, so I have two younger sisters and we're Nigerian. So Nigerians, <laughs> people, people always have this kind of, perception of Nigerians wanting their kids to be doctors or lawyers. And that perception, I can tell you, is absolutely true. It is not. (laughs) So you're Asian. Got it. Yeah, yeah, not just Nigerians. (laughs) My mother was like, when I finally got into Carolina, 
every couple of months, she would call me and be like, okay, how's your studies going? What's your major? Are you biology or is it policy? What is it? And the first semester it was biology. And by the end of it, I was like, I'm sorry, this is not working. (laughs) This is not working at all. I don't know what to tell you. Because also to her, oh, oh, poor, my poor mother. By the end of first semester, I was partying so hard because I'd never been able to do anything. And I just spent, it was the most wonderful six months of my life, my first year in college. So I wasn't really studying that much. But then after that, I had to, I had to really get it together because she was like, I will rip you from the dogs <laughs> of that school if you do not get it together. I and like I said, I know. Biology. What a great mom. You have a tiger mom. Yeah, right. I was like, listen, biology is not the thing, but maybe psychology. So then I was a psychology major because I was like, I could become a doctor if I do psychology. That was my thinking. I was a psychology major too because I was like, eh, I could still make it into med school with this degree. <laughs> I could still do the doctor route, right? And it's exactly. not. It's not pre-med because pre-med was just not a thing. I was like, once I figured out, I was like, we have to touch cadavers? No, absolutely (laughs) not. I'm not that one. Maybe Christina or maybe my other younger sister can do it. And then after psychology, that didn't work. I finally landed on journalism and communications. And she she just shook her head. By the time we got to junior year, I was like, listen, I'm not going to be a doctor. I think communications is where I'm going. She's like, communications? She just looked at me like, well, what? You can't become a doctor or a lawyer from a communications major. <laughs> that's, that's, how are you going to do that? So, yeah. But it, I mean, obviously, it was the best thing. It was the great, greatest thing for me at the time because my knack was for communicating. My knack has always been connecting and talking to people and communicating ideas and translating that into creativity and how things move in culture. But I don't really think that she really understood if I could earn an honorable and great living with the major that I had selected. My older sister who listens to this podcast, hi, she gives Sharon and I a hard time because we have a lot of marketers on the show. And we less so now, actually, right? Because we come from that world. And it's so interesting. I still don't think my parents understand what I do. And I jokingly call myself a recovering marketer. But there was a moment five or 10 years ago, maybe now 10 or 15, to date myself where my dad was like, oh, you're making a living doing this. I don't get it, but I accept that you can do something with this. People are willing to pay you for that weird, equal parts creative, equal parts analytical kind of thing that you do. And I guess I want to look, we met through a mutual friend, Heidi. And she, before she introed us, she sent me your ad age op-ed, which we'll put in the show notes. Without getting into the specifics of, oh, this job, this agency, that client, that's all on LinkedIn. You had some pretty interesting experiences in the ad industry. And I hate to say they're not unusual. You just might have been one of the first people to kind of put it on paper. Can you talk through kind of, I mean, sure, your experience, but kind of your takeaways from the entire thing? Because it wasn't, it wasn't rosy. It was the dark side of Mad Men in the 2000s. Yeah, it wasn't really rosy. And you know what? I think what's interesting is after that article went live, I offered an example in the article of some of my experiences. And my boss from that experience actually ended up inboxing me, sending me an email, an apology email, which was I took with grace. But I don't think that people in some of the places that I worked would probably know how miserable I was because I was really trying to keep it together, right? Because I didn't, I also didn't want to be the troublesome black woman at the agency that was not rosy and sunny all the time. So yeah, I mean, I think from my early experiences, I actually, before I went to portfolio school, I actually worked at a multicultural advertising agency that was based in Atlanta. And actually that for, for the most part, that was a really great experience because it was my introduction into advertising. And I also worked with all of my coworkers were people of color. All of my coworkers were black, with the, the exception of maybe like three people. And so I really, really fell in love with advertising. We didn't have the full scope of having a full service agency. And so that was what prompted me to go into, get into portfolio school because I really wanted to understand creative and strategy. But my experiences post-graduate school were 
just, I just didn't understand the resistance I was getting from some of my superiors and just some other people, creatives and other people in accounts. I just didn't really understand it. And I really internalized a lot of that as me being not good. Because at the time, I just really was like, I just want to be creative. I just want to be able to navigate a project and show my thinking or collaborate with other people and do the thing that I knew. I had so much fun in graduate school because, of course, there are no clients in graduate school. So you can just do whatever you want. And so I just took that into every agency that I worked at. And it just, it was a little heartbreaking because not only did I realize that I was getting resistance from some bosses I had or coworkers I had who in the beginning, they would love me, right? Because let's be honest, I interview very well. I know all- I I hear you have PowerPoint presentations when you interview. (laughs) I interview, I come in, I'm like- Full on portfolios. (laughs) Here's X, Y, and Z. I've got it in Keynote. I know how to design it really well. I have been practiced. Listen, I've been practicing interviewing since I was 13 years old. So I know how to make a good impression. The issue was getting into a space and then realizing that you have, there are political dynamics that I just- I just didn't understand or I didn't really want to be a part of and not really understanding the role of hierarchy. And even when you don't agree with people who are in management, that sometimes there's not anything that you can do about it or just even the concept of managing up. I just really didn't have anybody to tell me any of those things, right? I didn't have anyone to say, hey, this is what you should probably do when you're confronted with this. So I felt like I skid my knees a lot, right? In terms of understanding how to email, how to really not take things personally, which is a big thing. And even when you feel you're being presented with resistance, whether that is about your work or it actually is some sort of unconscious bias, that those are things that you need to kind of work around and not internalize it to the point where it affects your work because it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It did for me, at least in that particular agency that I highlighted in the article in Ad Age. I was shrinking if every three months if, if something didn't go well or I just felt like I kept, I couldn't catch my breath, right? And so I just, the last six months of me being there, I just would go into work, go into a conference room and stay there because it just felt very overwhelming. And I didn't really know how to navigate it or really well. I can really relate to that. I think I started off my career in the agency world as well for a couple of really big global agencies. And I remember experiencing exactly what you're talking about of having to learn corporate culture, but having to also learn how to feel as if I had to maybe be different or to fit in with quote unquote mainstream culture, which we're really talking about the majority, right? And I remember doing it in different ways. So when I was coming up, I guess we're about the same age, seven for all mankind jeans were the thing. Everyone had a pair of seven jeans and they were 150 bucks a pair. And when you're making no money at all as a advertising assistant account executive, that's a big splurge. But all the girls in the office were wearing those jeans. And I remember saving up my money to buy a pair of jeans just so I could literally wear the same clothes as the people around me. And so it's that what you're talking about is kind of, it's a little bit beyond just corporate politics. And it's certainly beyond cultural, cultural politics from like a race perspective. It's a different level, I think of, I'm not going to call it elitism, but there is this sense of there's us and then there's them, right? And if you don't exactly look like everyone around you, if you didn't exactly come up the same way, then it it felt as if you were, it was just hard to fit in. Yeah. There's this culture of assimilation that I feel like has just been an undercurrent of my young life and even into my career, where if you really want to 
we're kind of conditioned to want this American dream, right? And not just the American dream, but how you navigate your career based on what some of these powerful people in our culture have done as well. And so I too was subjected to that. I too also attributed what success looked like to you go to college, you go into a corporate culture and you you just navigate it. And then all of a sudden you get promoted to director and then you become a VP and then you become an SVP. I also had those desires and wants for my career because I that's what I thought success looked like. That's what I thought success was. And so even just trying to navigate, well, ah, this is so difficult. And having to assimilate also means stripping myself of who I was, not just what I was wearing, the things that I was really into, but even just the tone of my voice, the texture of the way I write, the way I communicate. I was really suppressing a lot of that. And it wasn't until I had a, I made the major decision to go freelance where I could really kind of separate myself for a while from this kind of an unending rat race of trying to climb, trying to climb in a system that really just felt very somatically difficult for me, not just mentally difficult and emotionally difficult, but just in my body, it just was like, this is too much. I don't know if I can keep up with this. But I was lucky because I had a little bit of an out, right? My overly ambitious doing too much self (laughs) decided while I was also working at a media agency that I would take the time to also continue my freelance or my side work. Ever since graduate school, the thing that has always been a constant is having a side project. (laughs) You always have to have a side project. And when I started, when I figured out that I could earn money doing my side project, I just never have stopped since 2011. And so in addition to being a full-time person and, and learning agency world, I also randomly in 2012 reached out to this woman who is the CEO of Curlbox, which is a subscription-based box for women of color who have naturally curly hair. Mm. And I, They do? Yeah, <laughs> right, right. I thought it was all straight. That's what I see on TV. Yeah. That's the pitch I always, always pitch when I talk about Curlbox. But I bring this up because it was the opposite of my full-time experience. It was the opportunity for me to pitch the way I wanted, to talk the way that was natural to me, and to really hone my skill set in terms of pitching and managing up because it was just myself and the CEO. I mean, she's she is a phenomenal entrepreneur and phenomenal business person. Her name is Mylique Teal. And I was the one who reached out to her and was like, hey, I'm a strategic planner. I know you don't know what that is, but here's what I'm thinking. And this was the start of her business when she had maybe 400 subscribers. She now is a millionaire and has tons of subscribers, but I have been she and I have been in relationships since 2012 and it has been the longest client relationship I have had. And I have grown up through that relationship. And so while I was having this bad (laughs) kind of adverse experience in agency world, I was also simultaneously having this other experience that was, it felt like, Oh no, this is who I am. I had another kind of example So I was kind of getting my wheels, I was really learning through two avenues at the same time. And so when that started and and that started picking up and she was seeing a lot of traction for her business, I decided, okay, well, I'm just going to keep doing this. As long as I can keep my full-time job, I'm going to keep doing side consulting gigs. Someone else, a friend of mine referred me to an investor out of LA, this guy who was like, hey, I need someone who's a brand strategist and can help me put together this new brand. I want to open up this e-commerce store. And he said, I'm best friends with the CEO of Christian Mingle, and I want to open up a faith-based e-commerce store. But he was Jewish. As one does. <laughs> he was Jewish, by the way. He was like, I think we could really do a good thing doing this. And I was like, well, I mean, okay, this sounds really interesting and strange, but whatever, let's just do it. And it actually ended up working out really well to the point where... At the later end of my time at my media agency, before I quit, he said, hey, I think I've got enough money to 
hire a full team. Can you quit your job next week? And I said, well, <laughs> I need two weeks, but yeah, I mean, I'm ready. And this was after, as I, I mentioned, six months of going into work and just wanting to go in a conference room and just stay there until the day was over. What and so I was pretty- was, Jennifer, about those experiences, those side hustle experiences, those freelance experiences that I think I know, I just want to hear you say it, but what was it about those experiences that were so much more fulfilling for you? The side hustle experiences for me was, it was really freeing because I wasn't just relegated to being a strategist, right? Or I wasn't just relegated to operating as an account person. I really had the opportunity to in my mind, operate as Robin Givens did in Boomerang. I was putting together a presentation. I was designing it. I was able to be kind of like my full creative self and then pitching it directly to the CEO and then asking for money and getting the money. So in my mind, I felt really empowered and I was able to really hone who I in my mind, imagine myself to be, right? My 16-year-old self imagined myself to be this badass boss woman who lived in New York. And doing those side projects allowed me to do that. Yeah. That sounds pretty badass, boss woman. <laughs> <laughs> I got to ask another question that yeah. is the other badass thing I learned about you when we met. You left the country. Yeah. <laughs> Most like, recently, right? How did, yeah. How did that happen? Wow. First of all, so much can happen in a year. Last year this time, I was in New York City and I was feeling a little stuck. I was feeling a little stymied because I was like, well, I know I know I want to do something new. I just hadn't figured out what that was. I, I knew I wanted to do something different with Gen Zen, which is what I call my consultant business. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to Jamaica for my birthday and I'm going to find some time, go to the beach and kind of like figure it out and then come back to New York. And then back in the day when we still could travel. Yeah. Back pre-COVID, right? <laughs> in the before times. Bef- in the before times. So what happened last March was I got back from Jamaica, which was around March 10th. And at the time in Brooklyn, and when I got home, people were like, just so you know, if you need toilet paper, you probably should go now. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, what's this thing people keep talking about? And they're like, I think everybody at my agency I was I was freelancing at at the time was like, you know what? Let's just work from home for the next two or three weeks. And then we'll just come back and we're going to resume the project that we're working on. So just so you know, don't come in tomorrow. We'll just continue to work from home and we'll just take it from there. And I said, okay. And I thought to myself, shit, does that mean I can't go to Costa Rica this year? I need to do something about that. If we're all working from home, who says that I can't work from Costa Rica? (laughs) It's not like it's a different time zone. It's only an hour difference. So, you know, I made the decision that day. I was like, I'm going to book a flight and I'm going to book a flight for three weeks and then I'll just be back. It won't, won't be a big deal. And so I booked a flight March 15th. I got to Costa Rica on March 16th, a Monday. And the next day, the borders closed. And I was like, oh, <laughs> thank God I brought my computer. I almost didn't. And so when I got to by that Wednesday, everybody was like, they're calling all Americans who are outside of the country to come home and quarantine. And I got a lot of calls from my friends and my family and they were like, are you coming home? Cause everybody- yeah, Jennifer, that's the point you make it to the airport, but you didn't. Yeah. No, 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 no. Right, well, yeah, <laughs> yes. But I mean, people were, people were like, you should probably come home. And I was like, but there's no, there's no cases here. I'm just going to stay. It's only, I'm like, it's only going to be until April. I'll just stay until April. How long can this thing last? This lasted like basically every three or four weeks, Costa Rica would update the country and say, any visitors that came in after this date, your visa has been extended. So my visa got extended to the end of April. And I said, I would call my friends and my family and be like, hey, I'm coming home in April. They were like, cool. And then it got extended to June 1st. And I was like, hey, I'm staying a little bit longer. (laughs) And it just kept going. It just kept going. Every time they extended, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to stay. By the time you and I had connected, 
I had in my mind made the decision that I was just going to live here forever. I was ready to go because by that point I was like, I've been without my things for at least four and a half months now and I don't miss them. Can I, I don't miss New York. <laughs> I, on my other podcast, I interviewed a black executive who lives with her family in Switzerland. She said being a black woman overseas is like getting extra oxygen because all the baggage of being black doesn't exist. And so I want to ask, because you were in Costa Rica for eight months. You just got back. Eight months. Did you, did you feel years. a difference? Absolutely. Absolutely. Being in a place where the dynamics of like race don't come into play. I mean, now I don't want to seem like I'm naive. It's it's not like people aren't aware of your race, but there wasn't a sense of I'm not going to serve you because of X or you're, you can't come see this place or you can't stay in this place because you're a black woman. The amount of relief I found and just being able to walk around and live my life and be the person that I feel like I've always been, I can't describe to you the freedom and also the awareness of how heavy a load that Black people and people of color carry in this country because you don't know it until you leave it. And then when you leave it and then you're, you're, you all of a sudden, there's just a day where you realize like, man, I hadn't thought about being black one time today. And it, it's so exhilarating. Sometimes I would find myself in the water or at a place and I would just cry out of just sheer, just, man, I don't know what I did to deserve this experience, but I'm really I'm really taking it to heart because I didn't know how upsetting it was to be in some of the spaces that I had really fought so hard to be in, especially working in New York, especially working in advertising and, and just the grind of it and the resistance that you get sometimes and the unconscious bias that you just kind of navigate and you just swap off like it's a mosquito, right? <laughs> you just go, ah, it's annoying, but okay, whatever. Yeah. Being overseas was a game changer. And I also think that it is the single reason why I was able to pivot into my current role now, because I just felt so free. I was, I was just like, I can do anything. There's nothing stopping me, but my own limitations. And so let me just try, let me just try a couple of things and see how it works out. Cause if anything, I'll land on my feet. That's how I got here. So, yeah. So now you're back. So now I'm back. Now I'm back in, I've left New York. I'm in my hometown, which I never thought I would say. I, I moved, willingly moved back to my hometown and back in advertising, but in a different capacity and actually loving the role that I'm in right now, which I'm really, really happy about. Why do you like it so much? Well, I think that one of the joys of, as you know, as you get older, you have a little bit more perspective. And if you do the internal work of learning how to respond to people and gaining personal awareness of how to use your energy and having enough therapy to realize that there are some things that you can't control and kind of settling my nervous system, I'm finally at a point where being in leadership now really does make sense. But I'm coming with all of those experiences that I described to you all in the beginning of this podcast, right? And knowing that I have the, I've had the experience of being a person of color in an agency that is not very diverse and what that means to someone who's just trying to get their work done and wanting to do a good job, maybe wanting to impress their leadership, I feel like I'm really uniquely positioned to not just take my learnings from all of those years, but it, I feel like it's my responsibility to show up exactly as I am. No assimilation needed, no need for code switching, right? The code switching is a big a big, big thing that I'm very cognizant of, especially now in leadership, to try to not sound overly white or what often happens, especially as a Black woman, when you enter into a space and there's primarily just white people there, you have a tendency to entrain and start to 
take on the tone of maybe the people that you're talking to. So instead of saying, oh yeah, man, this hits different. You might say, oh, oh, okay. Yeah. This feels different. The tone starts to change. And so I'm very, very cognizant of how I sound to the people I work with. I always am trying to make sure I meditate on how would I've needed someone like me to show up for me in this moment and what things and what practices do I need to make sure I am putting into practice so that like I am helping others navigate not only their careers, but navigate their own personal development while they're at work. So I feel like this is a perfect role for me at this time because I have spent so much time just really focused on my self-development really in a, just an effort to relieve my own anxiety. Right. But I think that what I'm learning now is that all of that work has really paid off because I'm really at a point where someone is calling me and going, I really need some help navigating this. I don't know what to do. And my goal is always to not tell anyone what to do, but to offer a perspective and say, hey, I know you feel like this is a big deal right now, but in the arc of your career, in the long arc of your it's life, it's just a moment, right? It's yeah. just a moment. And I need you to really understand like what is at play here and here are your options and really just think about things with some distance and then move. And if you need my help doing that, then I'm, I'm here to help you do that. I did not have somebody help me do that. Yeah. So in that vein, if you were to go back and give yourself advice from the beginning of your career, what advice would you give them? Mm, I would definitely say, try not to take things so personally, right? Try to, to hear, even when you're getting feedback, whether that feels like criticism or it's genuine, there are things that you could be doing better. Take the nugget and apply it, right? And don't internalize other people's bias and use it against yourself, right? And the other thing I would say is really spend a lot of time understanding your own motivations. Like I would say, Jennifer, like really, really, really understand there are things about you that you should just accept and that those things are not bad. Those things are your spark. Those things are wonderfully imperfect and very messy and it's okay to not be perfect, right? And don't be so worried about your weaknesses. Just lean all the way into your strengths because when you lean all the way into your strengths, your weaknesses don't matter as much. It's been a really weird year for all of us. Personally, myself, it's been a, a pretty stressful few weeks, actually, Jennifer. So this conversation has just, I can say these things to other people, but when you hear someone else saying them, it's really resonating. So thank you. And I feel like we could talk for hours, but I don't think my mom can take three hours of me talking. <laughs> <laughs> so we've only got a few minutes left. I don't know, Sharon, you think Jennifer's ready for speed round? Jennifer, I think you're so ready for speed round. Okay. She probably has a presentation. Let's do it. <laughs> well, you guys know, in order to prep for this, I definitely answered all of the questions and had some I did rehearsals. Yeah. yeah. Footnotes. Footnotes. <laughs> I have footnotes. <laughs> Jennifer, what's one thing about you that no one expects? I still have a desire to be a great voiceover talent. What? Yeah. That's great. We got a good mic now, so. Yeah, Yeah, I have my mic now, which I'm super excited about. (laughs) But also in college, I don't, obviously, many people don't know this, but I used to do the movie times at Carolina for varsity. Welcome to movie time. (laughs) That was exactly me. So (laughs) I got, I don't even remember how I got the job, but I just remember every Friday I would have to get the paper in the morning because at the time, guys, yep. you could kids, that's, that's how on. we found the movie times, <laughs> right? That's how we found the movie times. We would go and open the newspaper and see the movie times. But there was this platform called Student Advantage and you could yes. call to get the movie times. So my job was to open up the paper, look at all the movie times for <laughs> the, the weekend and like just record all of the movie times. So I record the movie, the description of the movie and the movie times. So it'd be like, you know, Friday, 
this movie. I think that's the best speed round, what no one expects answer that we've gotten so far. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> By far. <laughs> I got to tell you. So back in the days, like early AOL internet time days, right? I'd be ready to go to a movie. Mom's like, what time? And I was like, oh, let me go log on do the whole modem thing. She's like, why not? You just open the papers like, mom, this is the future. Right, right. <laughs> Where are Ten you now? Newspaper? Yeah. <laughs> but I really loved it. It was really the thing that sparked like me thinking about being like on air radio personality because I just I loved it. And when people called it, they would be like, have you called the varsity line for the movies? I said, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. talking to myself. That's that was me. <laughs> that was me. I love that. So speaking of movies, what's a movie or a book or a show with characters that you can relate to that you would recommend to others? Oh, absolutely love Craft Country. My God. My goodness. What a wonderful, fantastical approach to looking at the life of people of color in like pre-civil rights era and, and right, right during it. I think it, I think the time period was like fifties into the sixties, but I highly recommend everyone watching it because I was, I was completely riveted by how we got to see the other side of racism and how because usually when we have movies that are about racism, it's always about the struggle part of it. I refuse to watch The Help because I don't want to watch another story about how Black people try to have been like overcoming. Like we still are, but this one puts Black people in a position of power that I just don't think that we get to see in terms of narrative around this subject. And so I find it fascinating. There's also a sci-fi element that I completely love. And to position racism as the monsters in the movie, I just love it. One of my favorite things about good science fiction or genre fiction is you can can tackle a topic by talking about it from the side. We're not talking about racism. We're talking about aliens or monsters. What's your favorite mom dish? Ooh, my favorite mom dish is this tomato stew that she makes. It's like a tomatoes and onion stew that we put over fried plantains. Mm, and it's, it's plantains. like it is, it is Nigerian cuisine, but it's very specific to my mother's family. What's it called? What's the Nigerian name for it? I don't think it's called anything. I mean, most people would be like, oh, do you mean jollof rice? But it's not jollof rice. It's like a very specific stew that she makes that she's the only Nigerian woman (laughs) that I know makes it like this. I mean, I have a lot of aunties and uncles. Nobody makes it like my mother does. You just threw down the whole family. (laughs) 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 No one makes it, but it's my favorite thing. I ask for it all the time when I come home. And what's your least favorite food? My least favorite food. Oh, oh, I'm going to get dragged for this probably, but Mexican food. Podcast are We're not friends. Yeah, I know. <laughs> what no, do you know I, Mexican that's food? I it. That's why I prefaced it. I think maybe I just haven't had really good Mexican food. That's probably it. I mean, to be like, fair, there's no good Mexican food in New York City. I can say that yeah, definitively as a child true. of the South. There's this no is good true. Mexican food in New York City. Yeah, I'm hoping that when all this is over, I can actually go to Mexico City and maybe have my mind changed about that. But right now, like, I'm not really into it. Who's someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast? I probably would want to interview a couple of people. I'll say the first person, I can't remember his name right now, but he's the CEO. He's the founder of Calendly. The thing we love to make our calendar appointments with. I love Calendly. He is Nigerian. Oh, Tope Awatona. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I totally just internet at that, guys. I did not know who that was. (laughs) I would totally love to interview him just because I'm fascinated with anyone who comes from Africa and really just dominates a space like Startup. So yeah, I'm always interested to interview somebody like him. That's great. And what does being a modern minority mean to you? I think now 
if you'd asked me this maybe a year ago, I'd probably have a different answer. But now being a model minority is someone who is committed to their constant liberation and showing up as themselves for the benefit of other people. I mean, for the benefit of themselves, right? For the benefit of myself is to me, the best thing that I can do to be a model to someone else is to, to fully embody who I'm supposed to be, to fully give of myself and my work and, and to my friends and my family without hiding myself, without trying to assimilate or just not be who I am. Because people need to see me, not just as this person who doesn't mess up or someone who does things perfectly, but someone who is flawed, who's constantly trying and doesn't take it out on themselves when they don't get it right. I really like that. Jennifer, I regret that it took so long and a worldwide (laughs) pandemic and countries (laughs) and microphones for us to connect like this, but I'm so glad we finally connected. And thank you so so much for coming on the show. Thank you so so much. much. I enjoyed it so much. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. Everyone keeps talking about this as unprecedented times, which I actually disagree with. I think if you look at what happened post the civil rights movement, it's very similar to what we're seeing right now. It's going to look very similar to the 60s. There's going to be a significant amount of legislation put forward. People want to have the right intentions of making change and want to do things. But I'm afraid we're going to have all this great intention and there'll be unintended consequences that we've seen before. And so that's how I'm spending my Black History Month. I'm trying to feed my curiosity around things that we don't talk about because we tend to jump from slavery into Jim Crow into civil rights into like Obama's the president. Look at us. We're a great nation. But there's there's so many micro moments within those time periods that we should be learning from. That's it for now. I've been Ramin Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon.